All right, we're looking at chapter 4 of Lamentations this evening. You have the handout, which will be important. And as you look at the handout, what do you see on the left-hand side? What does it tell you? It's the acrostic. So we do have the acrostic that we have had from chapter 1. All four chapters have the acrostic feature, although the third chapter has it in spades. Well, it would be not accurate to say it in spades, but in threes. Each of the verses, the first three verses, it goes by three verses, I should say, at a time in chapter three. All right, so the acrostic feature is retained in chapter four as it has been in chapters one, two, and three. What do you not see? There is no chiasm in the fourth chapter. That is correct. Nor is there any concatenation as there was in chapter 2. So elements of the style of our poet are disappearing. And to add to that pattern of disappearing elements in terms of the form of this chapter we notice that in the arrangement of the Hebrew text, there are only two lines of Hebrew per verse in chapter 4. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, there were three lines of Hebrew per verse. And in chapter 3, there were nine lines of Hebrew per letter. So, what we're noticing is that he is diminishing or uh, depleting the formal style that he was using in the first three chapters. And we'll want to ask ourselves why he's doing that, or at least attempt to answer why he's doing that. But we also will observe that... The symmetry that was present in the first three chapters, particularly symmetry of chiastic reflection, mirror pattern symmetry, that's gone in chapter four uh, with one exception. You remember that we were able to line up in those first three chapters words or phrases that were exactly alike. In verse 1, verses verse 22. In verse 2, verses verse 21, and so on. You'll notice from this outline in front of you, that when you come to the first repeated word, Zion, in verse 2, and you look down to see where it occurs again in chapter 4, it does not occur in the symmetrical position. It occurs in verse 22, which is the last position in the chapter 
whereas it's in the second position at the beginning of the chapter, so we would expect it symmetrically to be in the next to the last position. In other words, Zion, if it were symmetrically arranged, would be in verse 21, but here it's in verse 22, an asymmetrical paradigm. So we've lost the chiastic feature, we've lost the concatenation, we've lost the same number of Hebrew lines, and we notice here, with respect to Zion, we've lost the symmetry of where the parallels, where they occur, uh, line up. They do not line up symmetrically. It is the same with verse 3, the phrase, in the wilderness, whereas you will notice it appears in verse 19, so it's in the third position at the beginning. It is in the fourth position at the end, not the third position from the end. Once again, an asymmetrical paradigm. The only symmetry in this chapter occurs in verse 6 and in verse 17. The negative particle or the negative form, no or not, which is in the sixth position in verse 6 and in the sixth from the end in position verse 17. That is the only symmetrical arrangement in the 22 verses of this chapter. The other elements there, as you can see, the knock in the streets phrase is out of sequence in verses 14 and 15. And perhaps more important, where we would expect there to be a perfectly, a perfectly symmetrical reciprocation at the center point of the chapter, verses 11 and 12, as we saw in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and then again in chapter 3, at verses 31 to 33, at the place where we need the midpoint of the chapter, verses 11 and 12 are not symmetrical. There's no symmetrical crisscross there. In fact, the word is one verse out of sync. A number of formal or paradigmatic features which indicate that this chapter is very different in terms of its Hebrew style from the other three chapters of the book, with the exception of the acrostic feature. That remains. But everything else has disappeared or been rendered out of sync, asymmetrical. Well, how then to account for this feature and the critics say we have the hand of a different author. We have a editor who came in after the fact and didn't recognize the genius of the author of the previous three chapters. And so he just put together that which he was trying to express out of his own theological, social, political religious experience. <clears throat> That's uh, one extreme answer. The other extreme answer, of course, is that this was all composed after the fact anyway. It was composed during the Persian period, and <clears throat> the writer simply ran out of steam. Whoever he was, and he wasn't Jeremiah, he got tired. And so he just dashed off the fourth chapter 
and forgot what he had been doing in the previous three chapters. In other words, our writer suffered from poetic exhaustion. Now, uh, neither of those are credible arguments, obviously, in my opinion, uh, not only because I believe Jeremiah is a poetic as well as prophetic genius, and he wouldn't have become tired of his pattern, uh, he wouldn't have forgotten himself, uh, he wouldn't have simply dashed off a chapter which was asymmetrical with his other chapters, unless there was some reason for writing the chapter the way he did. He preserves the acrostic, which tells you that he still has a flair for this exhaustive kind of A to Z paradigm of what he's describing within the chapter itself. But the the absence of the other features, the disappearance of the other features, the asymmetry of the other features, the minimization, the reduction of the amount of lines. Do you see what he's doing? Or don't you? In other words, if there's a method to his madness, if there is a rhyme or reason to this chapter, what is it? So, Venture your reputations. Yes, Randy. Well, I, I think he kind of peaked in the third chapter where he speaks of the Lord's, all the good stuff about the Lord, and then from there on it's kind of a digression. It's a digression. He really did get exhausted. He had spent all his energy on that marvelous third chapter. No, I think the theme is a digression, not the you know, the theme of the book becomes digressive because it peaks in the third chapter. So, right? that's just the staff. I'm just throwing a staff at you. Okay. Another suggestion? He's closing his argument. He's closing his argument. What do you mean by that? Well, he's been warning them, and they aren't heeding him, and he's starting to taper off. So you're you're suggesting that it's a prophetic downturn. Pete? Well, I think it has to do with the content that he has there. He's showing how how terrible the situation is with Israel, and therefore his language reflects that. So uh, you're suggesting that the the disappearance of the previous regularity or uh, consistency is reflected in what's happened to the city and the nation? Yeah, what's what he's talking about in the chapter? And what's he talking about in the chapter? What's he talking about in the chapter? Well, how bad it is for Israel. Yes, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in this chapter. By Jerusalem. And 
Whether it's he or not is another question. Whether it's Jeremiah himself, that's his voice or or not, that's another question. But the, the narrator here is telling things about the destruction of Jerusalem that we don't know from any place else. Some interesting insights into what was going on as that city was destroyed. So, it is possible that this diminishing number of lines, this asymmetrical pattern, this lack of a chiastic or regular reflection in the mirror that we've seen in the previous chapters with the reflexive chiasms, it's intentionally theological, it's intentionally descriptive of what's happened to the city, what's happened to the nation. The nation is disappearing, the city is disappearing into rubble as his form disappears. The city has declined to dust and ashes even as his form is waning and expiring. So what is disappearing here is form, which is a reflection of the destruction of the city itself, which ends up being asymmetrical, uh, irregular, uh, not uh, reflective, and simply a description of Jerusalem laid low at the end. The ebbing out of the life of the city, the structures of the city, the uh, citizens of the city, the culture of the city, etc. All right, now that is, uh, that's my suggestion for why we have this uh, irregularity here. It may not be the correct suggestion. There may be some other uh, insight. But what Pete has observed is also what I'm observing. Namely, there is a relationship between what is different here and what the content of the chapter is. And when I'm doing structure, when I'm exposing you to structure of biblical pericopes, I'm doing that because I believe that the structure of the pericope is a clue to the theological message that God is giving through that pericope. In other words, these structural outlines that I hand you are not esoteric uh, exercises in my ingenuity. If they are correctly ascertained, and many of them are backed up by others, if they are correctly ascertained, then because I believe in the inspiration of the text, I believe in the inspiration of the structure of the text. And that means that the mind that composed it is not only under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it's under the influence of its own poetic or narrative genius, which is heightened by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is intentional, because God is using every element of that personality in order to speak his message, the disclosure of his existence and his grace. He's speaking that in a structural style or a formal style which has in itself theological significance. The structure is unto the theological message. And that's the reason I'm so interested in it. 
That's true here in this fourth chapter. The structure is unto the theological message. The structure itself, in its dissymmetry, reflects the dissymmetry of Jerusalem in rubble. Randy, you had another question? What was that word you used? Just that one word you used totally escaped me. I use a number of words. Dissipatory or something? Pericope. Pericope. Oh, pericope. Oh, I thought you'd be used to that by now. <clears throat> What's a pericope? P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. Not pronounced pericope. Pronounced pericope. What's a pericope? Ben? Passage of Scripture. Yes, a passage of Scripture. A section of Scripture. Okay, so like in your Bible, some of the times it's paragraphs, sometimes it's a capital, a bold capital letter that indicates a new section. Okay, a pericope is a unit, a literary, rhetorical, narrative, poetic unit. Yes, that's fine, it's a thought pattern. Well, it can be a number of sentences. The point is that there's a literary or narrative unit there. The the parables of Jesus are all pericopes. They're units unto themselves. Okay? You get that idea. And when we're dealing with these sections of uh, Lamentations or any other book in these studies that I direct... We're looking at pericopes. We're breaking them down into sections or pericopes of the whole, of the whole. Because there are sub, there are, there can be many pericopes in a whole chapter. You're welcome. Okay. Well, then let's look at some of the structural observations that are present in this fourth chapter. In verse 1, at least in the New American Standard, we have the Hebrew word, Hebrew verb poured out. You'll notice that that Hebrew verb occurs once again. It's the same Hebrew verb in verse 11. Does that suggest any structural pattern to you? Namely, the Hebrew verb in verse 1 is the same as the Hebrew verb in verse 11. Does that suggest anything about what that Hebrew verb may be doing structurally? All right, a clue. It stands at the beginning of a pericope. It stands at the beginning of a unit. It signals the head of a unit. Well, what would the unit be for verse 1? If it's at the head of the unit, what would the unit be? Versus what? One through ten. One through ten, because it occurs next in verse eleven. So, what would the next unit be if the first unit was one to ten? What would the next unit be? 
11 to 13? No, 11 to 20, the next 10 verses. So, poured out is a verb which signals a unit, which is symmetrical. That is, the same number of verses. Verses 1 to 10 are headed or announced by the word poured out. Verses 11 to 20 are sent, are signaled or outlined by the beginning word poured out. And what do we call a word which stands at the head of a unit? Aperture. Aperture. Not an aperture. Mark? It is an anaphora. So we have an anaphora here. This is an anaphora. A-N-A-P-H-O-R-A. Which is a stylistic device in which a term heads a series of verses or a series of propositions. Okay, the word poured out is in the third line of verse 1 in the New American Standard. The sacred stones are poured out. And in verse 11, the Lord has, second line, has poured out his fierce wrath. That's exactly the same Hebrew word, Hebrew verb. Well, verses 1 to 10 are a unit, a pericope. Verses 11 to 20 are a unit, a pericope. What does that leave? Verses 21 and 22. What do you see in verses 21 and 22? You do not see in an after. What do you see? Go ahead, Marge. Uh, okay. You could call it an inclusio. I'm going to call it something different because of what's in between. What's in between, Marge? Dying. What do we have now? No. It's a sandwich. It's a sandwich device. You could call it an inclusio that Edom is included around Zion, but if you if you put the emphasis on sandwich, then Zion stands out at the center of the sandwich which is exactly what the author is doing. He's making Zion stand out in contrast to Edom. So he's got Edom surrounding Zion, but Zion's at the center, and so it stands out. <clears throat> so you have, you have Edom, Zion, Edom again at the end. So there is a structural similarity in inside this chapter to a certain extent, but it's not an acrostic stylistic symmetry. It's based upon the units themselves. All right, now there's another bracket here. Yes, there was a question. Go ahead, Ben. You mentioned verse 20. I don't see how this is connected. In verse 20, I'm sorry, I meant verse 21 to 22 for the last unit. Right. Correct. Yes, well, you notice in verse 10, we're just uh, coming to the break before the next poured out in verse 11. So I'm looking at the symmetry of 10 verses in the anaphora section in verses 1 to 10, 
And I'm saying that the next 10 verses are also a similar 10-verse uh, pattern. Okay? Because when you come to verse 21, you completely change gears. You're no longer talking about Jerusalem or Zion in verse 21. You're talking about Edom. So he's completely switched. A, a, a new unit. It's a very small unit, but it's a new unit. Go ahead, Pete. He had poured out here on the sheet at verse 13. And now you say that it's also poured out in verse 20? No, it's not poured out in verse 20. I'm saying that the, the anaphora feature is in verse 11. And it go and that next unit, starting with verse 11, goes 10 verses like it did in verse 1 to 10, and it ends in verse 20. Okay, but poured out is not, poured out is not included in, in, in a header for another unit. It's incidental in this case, in verse 13. You're right to notice that it's there, but it's incidental, in my opinion. Okay. There was another hand up. Okay. All right. Well, what what about the? Go ahead, Randy. Same word in thirteen. Yes, it's the same Hebrew word in thirteen. Only it means to shed blood in that case, and so it has a different nuance. But nonetheless, it's not in an an Afra position, and it's not in a symmetrical position otherwise. So it's incidental, in my opinion. All right. What other what other bracketing do you see? In verses 11 to 20. That's it. That's it. The word Lord, and it's Yahweh here, the word Yahweh appears in verse 11 and verse 20, which reinforces the fact that 11 and 20 are a unit unto themselves. That is a possible inclusio and could be treated as such. Now, what pronouns are present in these units? We've got the units, verses 1 to 10, verses 11 to 20, and verses 21 to 22. One of the things we've noticed as we've examined this poetry is that the use of the pronouns is crucial to identifying the voice of the speaker or the voice of the narrator. So as we look at verses 1 to 10, what pronouns do you find? Okay, and what person pronoun is that, Dick? What person pronoun is they, them, their? Third person plural. Okay, we have third person pronouns here, and in this case, plurals. <clears throat> what other pronouns do we have? My people. What person is that? First person, first person number? Singular. singular. First person singular, the my pronoun. Okay, so we have a first person singular, we have third person plural. Do we have any other third persons? You'll notice the pronouns her and it. Those are third person singular. So, we have first person and third person pronouns. First person singular, my, no other, no other one occurs, not the I or me, just the my pronoun. <clears throat> and we have third person pronouns, 
plural and singular. All right, what about verses 11 to 20? What pronouns do you find there? You had first person singular pronouns in 1 to 10. Do you have first person singular pronouns in 11 to 20? Do you see any my, I, me pronouns? Do you see any first person pronouns at all? You are third person plurals again. Yes. Third person singulars again. What else do you see? Do you see any first person pronouns? Art? What do you see? Name the pronoun. Our. Our. Yes. You see our, we, and us. What number is that? First person. First person plural. So, we have first person singular. In 1 to 10, we have first person plural, plural, our, we, us, in 11 to 20. And we have the same third person singular and plural pronouns in 1 to 10 and 11 to 20. All right, now, what do we have in verses 21 and 22? What person is there? You. You. Yourself. Your, what number is that? Second person singular, yes. And also, go ahead. Yes, generally speaking, here they are. And what other pronoun do we have? He, third person singular again. All right, now. Who is the subject of the first person in this chapter? Who is the subject of my in verses 3, 6, and 10? Whose personal voice are we hearing in this chapter? That's the question which needs to be answered in order to understand the perspective from which the language of the chapter is written. How then do we answer the question? We look at the clues. Let's begin with the first word in chapter 4, which happens to be the same first word in chapter 2, which happens to be the same first word in chapter 1, which happens to be the title of this book in Hebrew, namely, Eka, and you see it written there in the Hebrew for you. The initial Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the acrostic style. The Eka, with the first letter Aleph, stands in the first verse, first line, chapter 1, first verse, first line, chapter 2, first verse, first line, chapter 4. To whom is it referring? Chapter 1, verse 1. To whom is it referring? Chapter 2, verse 1. And does that tell us to whom it is referring in chapter 4, verse 1? In other words, if he has used the very same word to inaugurate 
three chapters in this five-chapter poetic drama? Is he giving us a clue by the previous use of that word to the use in this chapter? Yes, he is. And who's he speaking about? Yes, he's referring to the personified city. In chapter 1, it is the personified city or the female figure, Lady Jerusalem, who is being described. In chapter 2, it is once again the personified city or the female figure, Lady Jerusalem, which is being described. Chapter 4 would be consistent then with chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, referring here by Eka to the personified city, the female figure, Lady Jerusalem, as the narrator, as the speaker. The title to this outline is Disappearing Symmetry and One Voice. Who's one voice? It is the voice of Lady Jerusalem. Now, it is true that Jeremiah is recording this, but this is not the voice of the prophet himself. This is not the voice of the poet, prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah recording the voice of Lady Jerusalem. So in verses 1 to 10, where she uses the my pronoun, she's speaking individually. In verses 11 to 20, where she uses the us, we, our pronoun, she's speaking corporately. And in verses 21 to 22, where she uses the you pronoun, she is speaking hortatively, hortatively, giving exhortation. But this is, in my opinion, the voice of Lady Jerusalem giving a description of the destroyed city of Jerusalem from her point of view. Now, is she echoing another voice in this drama? She comes with her description after chapter 3. Whose voice were we listening to in chapter 3? As the as the as the suffering 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 man, yes, as a suffering man. I am the man who has seen affliction. Is she echoing his voice? Is the male figure of chapter 3 balanced by the female chapter of chapter 4? Is that the reason that we have this chapter lined up right next to chapter 3? Namely, what he has said, she is echoing in measure... I think so. I think she's echoing that voice of the previous chapter, but without the extensive symmetry, because her voice is a voice 
of lamentation in dissymmetry, in chaotic dissolution, in the disappearance of all balance in this city which has been leveled. And she also does not have the language of vicarious imagery. There is in this fourth chapter no substitutionary language. No language of Lady Jerusalem taking the position of the suffering city herself. And finally... There is in this chapter no eschatological vector. There is no language of the intrusion of the vertical into the horizontal. Notice verse 18. Her narrative is the end. It is the end of the drama which she experiences. It is the horizontal end of her horizon. Even in verse 22, when she mentions the end of exile, it is an horizontal end of exile. There is no vertical aspect here. There is no vicarious or substitutionary aspect here. This is a chapter of the flat line on the horizon of destroyed Jerusalem. She has flatlined her experience because the city has been flattened all around her. One voice. One voice is the female voice of daughter Jerusalem with a perspective as flat as the rubble lying around her. That is my suggestion for the uniqueness of this fourth chapter, but it stands it in connection with what has gone in the previous three chapters and will signal, as she says, the end of the description. Because in chapter five, we are going to encounter a chapter which is completely unlike anything else in the previous four. David? This is tangential and not on subject, but 21 and 22, you have Edom as the uh, subject or the target of the, of the discourse or prophetic message. Um, and my understanding is that Obadiah was directed to Edom. Um, and Jonah went to Nineveh. Why um, do we have prophets speaking to Nineveh and Edom and not... Uh, restricted to Israel and Judah. 
in the case of Jonah and Nineveh, it's because Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire and the great opponent of both the northern and southern kingdom in the century of Jonah's, Jonah's uh, life. Uh, in the case of Edom here, Edom is a perpetual antagonist to both Israel and Judah, to the kingdom of Israel-Judah, <clears throat> and had particular delight if the book of Obadiah is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, and that's an interesting question. <clears throat> if Obadiah is prophesying against Edom because of Edom's gloating over the destruction of Jerusalem, then this verse, these two verses here, are a reflection of that gloating. Your joy, as it says in verse 21, <clears throat> will be turned into shame, verse 22, your joy at what? Your joy at the destruction of my city. So you will be shamed even as I have been shamed. And that eventually did happen to the nation of Edom. In fact, the Babylonians did it <clears throat> later on in the 6th century B.C. So, <clears throat> so it's, it's not that... Uh, the prophets are not interested in Judah. Here, J Lady Jerusalem is giving a lamentable uh, description of what happened in the city. <clears throat> it's because the Edomites were, uh, you know, like the uh, cheering fans on the sidelines, jumping up and down while Israel was going, or Judah and Jerusalem were going up in smoke. And <clears throat> God, uh, God is going to take vengeance there, even as at the end of chapter three. The righteous or suffering man asks God to recompense the enemies of Israel for their vengeance. Okay. Well, we've come to the time of our break. So uh, if you have no other questions about uh, the second sheet, we'll take our break and come back for sheet number three. Oh, Scott, you've got a question. You're sitting out there in the outer darkness. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to take a break, so I was going to ask you for the break. But uh, I'm intrigued by your suggestion that it's, you know, Lady Jerusalem speaking here. It's, 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 uh, I, I was uh, wondering about uh, one passage, which actually I noticed in So let me ask, I had two questions here. One related to that, which I don't have with me. The other one is Akah. Your logic is, I know that Akah, how, introduces, you know, one, one, two, one. And they're all speaking about the city. But how do we know that it's not how about the city, but spoken in the third person? With reference to the city, not that the city is speaking. In other words, why does it argue for the fact that the city is speaking about herself rather than someone else speaking about the city? Yeah. Um, uh, it's the cry of woe. It's stronger than how. <clears throat> so it carries with it that poignancy of a, of a spoken catastrophe. And <clears throat> I don't think it's purely descriptive, I, uh, purely descriptive in the narrative sense. I think it's also personally reflective. In other words, it carries with it the, <clears throat> what you would see if you were looking out over the smoking ruins of Jerusalem. Alas and alack. Then do you think one one? Well, that's my response to that. Yeah, do you think one and one and two one are also because they use the last one? Yes. And two one are also Lady Jerusalem. Yes. Well, it's the personified city in her particular role. 
Okay. So all three of them. All three of them. All right, interesting. And then... I think he's being completely consistent, or at least the recorder is being completely consistent. Go ahead. Then the other one is then, obviously, the city has also spoken up in the third person. For instance, in 4, I think it's 412, certainly 413. Yes. She had within her the blood of her priests. So now, is the city now speaking about herself in the third person? Yes. That's my opinion. Yes, I think so. Thanks. You're welcome. Now we're on to the third sheet in the outline. And you'll notice a little symmetry there between, uh, with the use of Zion and particularly the first use of Zion is sons of Zion and the last use of Zion is daughter of Zion, verse 2, verses, verse 22. A symmetry of the events in the chapter falling on both male and female inhabitants of Zion. But the conclusion of using the daughter of Zion in verse 22 at the end of the chapter lends some plausible support to my argument that it is the female voice being subject and object of this fourth chapter. In other words, the name daughter of Zion at the end is also almost, shall we say, a stamp, a, a mark of the speaker, the voice in the chapter. <clears throat> uh, I think perhaps subtly so, but nonetheless, I think uh, somewhat emphatically so. It's like the staccato at the end of <clears throat> a uh, piece of music. All right, now... <clears throat> This chapter is a recasting of the narrative. <clears throat> what we mean by recasting is it's a repetition or telling once again, it's a reiteration or recursion of the dramatic destruction of Jerusalem from the narrative point of view of Lady Jerusalem. In fact, there are some female touches <clears throat> in this chapter which are not present in any of the other chapters, again, lending some credibility to my case, my argument for the fact that this is <clears throat> the narrative voice of Lady Jerusalem, the female voice. One of the first elements <clears throat> that directs my attention that way, or shall I say, firms up my argument in that direction, <clears throat> is the vividness in this chapter. Especially vivid is the use of colors. In no other chapter of this book are colors used the way they are used in this chapter. It is as if we have Lady Jerusalem remembering all the colors on the shelf or on the, the hooks at Nordstrom's or whatever. Now, I'm being a little facetious there, but nonetheless, this use of color imagery has a kind of feminine side to it. First of all, 
The first verse talks about the color gold. Poured out on the streets along with the sacred stones. The gold poured out from where? Where did this gold come from? From the temple. Yes. And it's dark or dim as the King James Version puts it. How the gold has become dim. Why is it dim or dark as the New American Standard translated? I don't know what your ESV has there. Maybe it has dark as well. Dim, as the King James said. Okay, why is it dim or dark? Either translation is okay. Not pure anymore. Because it's not pure. Possibility. What else? Charred by fire. It's charred by fire. It's covered by soot and dust and ash. It's been clouded by being burned and scorched. So, the gold has become dim not because of some decrease in value per se, but because it's been a part of the destruction of the city. It has been burned up, so to speak, or affected by the fires of destruction, even as the city itself. The next color is in verse 5, the color purple. Only here, it is probably that very rich red purple, perhaps even the famous Tyrian purple, made from the shells of mollusks that the Phoenicians sold across the Mediterranean basin at great price, extremely expensive. It was used in royal robes. Here, it may be referring to royal regalia, but also also to very expensive reddish purple robes and sashes. The irony here is, as you notice from the verse, verse 5, that those that were garbed or clothed in this lavish and uh, beautiful reddish-purple garb are embracing ash pits. Verse 7 gives us the color snow white, which is a reference to the pampered caste of society, perhaps the religious caste of the Nazarites, who are mentioned in this verse as the supposed super holy and were dressed in snow white garb to distinguish themselves from everybody else who was less holy. <clears throat> the white garment of alleged separated purity. That seventh verse also has... <clears throat> The color coral red, referring perhaps to bright ruddy red skin or ruddy body color in general. The Hebrew here is literally red bones, but maybe a image for the entire person, uh, not just the uh, calcium of the bone itself. And once again, the pampered caste of the population who had time to uh, have their sin, have their skin uh, massaged and reddened, etc. The last color there in verse seven is lapis lazuli. What color is lapis lazuli? Sapphire. 
Color? Blue. Yes, it's a very rich, dark blue. <clears throat> but this <clears throat> color is polished, as the verse indicates. In other words, these persons who were snow white or garbed in snow white clothes, these persons who were coral red in complexion or physique, these persons were polished off or finished off with lapis lazuli, blue-hued, rich blue-hued jewels or ornaments. But what has happened? Verse 8. They become black as soot. Their coral red skin is no longer coral red. Their snow white appearance is no longer snow white. Their embellished lapis lazuli decor is no longer richly blue. They are black as soot. Why are they black as soot? Have they been burned up? No. They're suffering what? They're suffering starvation. They're suffering starvation and famine. We've already seen that image previously that during the siege of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, cut off all food supplies coming in and out of the city. And so the people starved to death, many of them, because the siege dried up the food sources uh, outside and inside the city. All right, this vivid description comes from the voice of Lady Jerusalem, who would be attentive. She would be attractive to vivid colors as the city descended into the blackness of starvation and death. Now, the second recasting or retelling comes from verse 10 and its connection with verse 3. This heart-rending image of madness and cannibalism. The unnatural reversal of maternal instinct. Mothers not offering their breast even as an animal, the jackal does, but rather boiling their own children to feed and fill their mouths. Not the mouths of their children filled with mother's milk, but their mouths filled with the children themselves. The horrible consequences of nature <clears throat> devouring itself. That, of course, is another feminine image and consequently, once again, lends some support to the female voice in this chapter. Verse 12 <clears throat> repeats the invulnerability of Jerusalem, but not in this case from presumption within the city. Now, what do I mean by presumption of invulnerability from within the city? 
You may remember Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. The slogan that was chanted during this siege, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In other words, we have the temple of the Lord, we are invulnerable. That was the cry from within the city. The presumptive cry from within the city. The false hope pride from within the city. That's not what's being described here in Lamentations 4.12. This is the invulnerability of reputation from without, from outside of the city. This is the invulnerability that was presumed from outside by kings and people of the world who viewed Jerusalem's gates and her walls as insuperable. Who could ever breach that city? It is the watching world that is described in this verse, not the inside besieged citizens. The nations were amazed that Jerusalem was destroyed. She had the reputation amongst the nations of being impenetrable. And betrayal... What about betrayal? Well, here we need to turn back to Jeremiah 37 for a moment. So let's go back to the book of the prophet, chapter 37, beginning with verse 5. Now you'll notice in verse 1, that Zedekiah is on the throne. And Zedekiah is the king, the last king of Jerusalem, the king on the throne when the siege of 587 is set by Nebuchadnezzar. Notice verse 5. Pharaoh's army had set out from Egypt And when the Chaldeans or the Babylonians who had been besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. Now, why did Pharaoh's army set out from Egypt? They set out to go towards Judah at the request of Zedekiah or his ambassadors or somebody that got through the walls of the siege and made their way down to Egypt. In other words, as Lamentations 4, verse 17 says, our eyes failed looking for help was useless. We watched for a nation that could not save us. What nation were they watching for? Jeremiah 37, 5. They were watching for the coming of the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians came... Nebuchadnezzar lifted the siege of Jerusalem and turned his attention to the approaching Egyptian army. And verse 6, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus you are to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. And the Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city, and they will capture it and burn it with fire. Looking to a nation that would help them resulted in the betrayal of that nation 
tucking its tail between its leg and running across the Sinai back to Egypt and the safety of the Nile as soon as Nebuchadnezzar Chaldean army matched and faced it on the battlefield. Judah, Lady Jerusalem, has been betrayed by the Pharaoh of Egypt, who was no help at all. Now, we've already discussed the fifth image of recasting in this narrative, namely the role of the neighbor adversary Edom. And David pointed out a little bit ago with his question about the subject of the book of Obadiah. For the book of Obadiah, which is the smallest book in the Old Testament, is devoted to one subject. And that is the Edomites. And how God's wrath is going to fall upon the Edomites. You notice an intimation of that here in this fourth chapter. For in verse 21... Joy is the, joy and gladness is the emotion of daughter Edom, who dwells in the land of Uz. Incidentally, Uz is in the Edomite region. But you will notice in verse 22 that God will punish the iniquity of daughter Edom. In other words, that joy and gladness is ironic. It's ironic in two ways. It reflects upon the jubilation that the Edomites felt when Jerusalem fell, which is the reason Zion is sandwiched between the two lines of Edom in these two verses. That was Zion was the object of Edom's focus, object of her joy and gladness, object of her rejoicing. But Edom is going to be shamed and stripped naked and exposed to God's wrath and punished for her iniquity, including her iniquity for rejoicing at the destruction of her related, uh, uh, her related relative, namely the sons of Jacob through Judah. So there's an element here in Lamentations that we haven't seen before. In fact, this is the first mention of Edom in the book. But it is reflective of a larger biblical concept of Edom with respect to the wrath of God upon that nation for its jubilation at the destruction of Jerusalem. And the final thing to note is verses 19 and 20. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the sky. Who were the pursuers? The Babylonians. They chased us on the mountains. They waited in ambush for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Who's the Lord's anointed? What's his name? It is Zedekiah. He had fled to the wilderness, of whom it had, we had said under his shadow we shall live among the nations. What is being described here? It is Zedekiah's cowardly flight in the dark of night, eastward 
from Jerusalem towards the plains of Jericho, where he was captured by the Babylonians and taken to Nebuchadnezzar. This coward, whose treachery brought on the siege of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., what treachery? He had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was Nebuchadnezzar's servant. He had been placed on the throne in a previous rebellion by Nebuchadnezzar and made his vassal as Nebuchadnezzar was the suzerain master of Judah and Jerusalem. And he was to pay his annual taxes to the imperial master and treacherously rebelled against that promise and brought his people into danger, including the terror of death. He provoked the destruction of his capital and his nation by his treachery, by his duplicity, by his lies and deceit, by his rank denial. Nothing will happen to us. We will be fine even though I play the liar. Even though I deceive the emperor, even though I refuse to recognize the danger that he is to me and to my nation. Zedekiah regarded himself as wiser and shrewder and more politically savvy than the Iraqi king, whose war machine had already demonstrated its prowess by attacking Jerusalem twice before. I've already attacked your nation twice, said Nebuchadnezzar, and you want to take me on for the third time? I've got news for you. I'm going to get you again. And if you don't believe me, just remember how I got you before. And it was, and when it was clear that his nation and capital were doomed, what did that yellow-livered coward do? He fled. He ran for his life. And when Nebuchadnezzar captured him in his own nets, mind you, Nebuchadnezzar caught that coward in his own nets. He laid the trap. He put the pit in the way. He ambushed him on his way to the wilderness. Nebuchadnezzar caught the coward. He blinded his eyes. He blinded his eyes but kept that coward alive so that everyone who would see him could spot his blindness upon his despicable and traitorous face. Sick, 
semper cowardice. And that brings us to the end of Lamentations chapter 4. Lady Jerusalem lamenting the fact that her anointed messianic king had betrayed her, sold her out, blinded by the assaults of terror and destruction that had been launched upon her and against her for a period of 20 years and more. Any questions or comments? Let's pray. Our Father, we grapple with the difference in this fourth chapter. And yet, regardless of our conclusions, it is the voice of a city descending into death. It is the voice of a city reflecting upon all of the elements of death which have come upon her. The death that she earned because she would not listen to you. The death that she earned because she thought that she could deceive you. The death that came to her because you are a perfectly just and righteous God in your anger. For you will not leave sin unrequited. She has no substitutionary character of her own. And it is as if her despair does not even see that avenue. She has no eschatological Messiah for whom to look because the anointed that she thought to dwell under the shadow of is blind and led off to exile and death. We are not in such a position, Lord. You have graciously opened our eyes to the light of the world, who is Messiah, Lord, indeed. A king who is not a traitor. A Messiah who is not treacherous. A Savior who is indeed holy and perfectly vicarious. And a leader and ruler who governs a kingdom which there is perfect sinlessness, perfect peace, and perfect everlasting life. No treachery, no lies and deceit, 
no cowardice and denial. How we bless you for him and that kingdom. And how we bless you by your goodness. You have enabled us to be brought into it, joined to him in it, and given the hope that this world cannot offer. Encourage us and you encourage all your sons and daughters in this dark and evil generation. You encourage them with the Lord Jesus, your dear son. You encourage them with your Abba Father, fatherly care. You encourage them with the spirit of holiness which indwells and breathes into them the life of the age to come. O Lord, you have encouraged our hearts with the message of a kingdom and a Jerusalem which will never be destroyed. For it is the city of the Lamb of God who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.